The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I am Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Thanks for joining me. Today I'm here with Tom Zuba. Tom is a life coach, author, and speaker, teaching people all over the world a new way to do grief. Tom offers those living with the death of of someone they love dearly the tools, knowledge, and wisdom to create a full, joy-filled life. In 1990, Tom's 18-month-old daughter, Erin, died suddenly. His 43-year-old wife, Trish, died equally as suddenly on New Year's Day, 1999, and his 13-year-old son, Rory, died from brain cancer in 2005. Tom and his son, Sean, are exploring life one day at a time in Rockford, Illinois. Tom's first book, Permission to Mourn, A New Way to Do Grief, is available in paperback and as an ebook at both Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. To learn more, visit TomZuba.com, join Tom's Healing Circle on Facebook, which is uh, Facebook.com slash TomZuba1, follow Tom on Twitter, at TomZuba, and he also has a YouTube channel. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. I'm really, really happy to be here with you today, Cheryl. So happy to have you. I want to start by saying I really enjoyed your book a lot, and uh, I found it unusual in that, because of course I read a lot of books about grief, uh, given what I do, Uh, but it seemed to really recognize the capacity of a griever. I know when I first experienced the death of my wife, I really couldn't read a lot of words. And uh, your book is very spacious that way. Uh, A few words on each line, uh, lots of room on the page. I wonder if that was your intention to kind of make it possible to be read by people who are new to grief. That was definitely one of my intentions. Um, I remembered very clearly all three times I experienced an intimate death, those days and weeks, and honestly even months when I would sit down and read the newspaper and I would come to the fifth paragraph and not have a clue what I had read in the first paragraph. So that was definitely part of it. Um, but it's also written in, in my language. That's my voice. And mm-hmm. I wanted it to be as if I was sitting down with the reader and literally, you know, gently and softly 
telling them everything I've learned over the last 20 years. And that came through as well. You know, there's there's a different quality to the voice uh, that isn't theoretical. You know, when we have actually experienced things, and and at least for me, when I'm when I'm trying to help someone who's experiencing that, uh, the most important thing, maybe, well, I I feel a lot of compassion. That's one important thing. The other is just having experienced it, and leaving a lot of room for whatever that is. Absolutely, absolutely. I love the word accompanying, and mm-hmm. I wanted to accompany the reader on their journey. Um, and my, my thoughts are that that, that that is what comes across. But, but I'll tell you something fascinating, and anyone that's an artist I think will be able to relate to this. I literally have been working on this book in four or five different forms for about five, no, about 20 years. I was going to say five, about 20 years. Mm. And, and, and about 18 months ago, an internal shift occurred. And this book poured out of me, literally. And anyone that's um, published a book knows that before you get that final copy, that final approved copy, you've read the book 50, 75, 100 times. And, and today, I'll pick this book up, and I'll read passages, and they'll kind of take my breath away. And I'll think, well, now who wrote this? <laughs> this, this is beautifully phrased. You know, I love the image that's presented here. Who wrote it? So I really, really feel like this book was called forth by the people that will read it, and it literally came through me. There's two things I hear in that that seem so important to me. Came through you, that's very important, but also the 20 years. Uh, There's some way that without having done all that the book would not be the same because Absolutely. because i can feel that in it it uh that that you've uh uh experienced and thought about these things a great deal and yet it it's uh, i can see what you mean about it it being called forth it's very easy in feeling what i say in the book in a couple of different places in a couple of different ways is that this literally, this literally is the book I wish I had read after my daughter died. And it's the book I wish I would have read after my wife Trish died. And I promise you, I wish someone had just shoved this in my face after my son Rory died. But it wasn't available. And I I had to live that. I had to live through those three experiences, so I could write it, and, and I could write it then for all the people that have already read it and, and will read it. Um, that what's interesting, to, to read this book and to know this book, you know me. This, this book is me. It is mm-hmm. not difficult for me to talk about it. I love talking about it because this is me. 
Yeah, I, that reminds me of something uh, I was told about doing this show. You know, what's I asked what what's most important, you know, to have a good show, and the and my producer said, "Be yourself. That's it." <laughs> you know, I think we do better when we when we just are ourselves, don't you? Absolutely, when, absolutely. I, I, along the way, I've had many different, you know, friends who acted as consultants and you know, guided me along the way. Mm. And uh, one of my friends used to say, and I used to get such a kick out of this, when I would say, David, I'm not sure what I should say. You know, I'm not really sure what I should say. And he said, Tom, when all else fails, just tell the truth. (laughs) (laughs) What a concept. Good advice. You know, the other thing that, um, that, really stood out to me both reading the book and just finding out about you, uh, finding out who you are and what you do and what you've been through, is that uh, I would consider it pretty unusual to have uh, these kinds of very significant losses of very young people, not at the same time, you know, uh, which, of course, if there's an accident and everyone's in the car, you know, (laughs) Uh, but I don't know many people, I can think of one other, who lost their family members over a period of time like you did. And I wondered how that impacted grieving. You know, uh, you'd, you'd kind of re, reform, and I get the impression that was different every time. And then another loss would come along, and you'd reform again. That's a very particular experience, I feel. Yes, yes. Let me share this, though, with you. I do believe um, that like attracts like. And through my Facebook page, just over the last couple of years, I'm attracting more and more people throughout the world who have had experiences not that dissimilar from mine, mm-hmm. whereas two or three or four intimate family members have died from different causes uh, at, at different times. So I'm, I, I understand what you're saying because I thought that for a long time, but I am not as unique and rare as I had once thought. So I find that fascinating. It is. Um, the, the one person I was thinking of, I don't know if you know him, is Benjamin Allen. Um, he's an author. He was on my show several months ago. But his family members all died of the same thing over over time. They all had AIDS. So you know that's a different mindset uh, than I was. I was imagining myself in your shoes, sort of, uh, because they were so uh, the causes were unrelated. Uh, sort of coming out of left field. That that feeling. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And, and, to, and to get back to answer your question directly, this is how I explain it. When my 18-month-old daughter Erin died really suddenly, now a lot of people think she died from SIDS. She didn't. Um, mm-hmm. She was in the hospital for a couple of days, but that was so quick and it was so sudden and so unexpected even though I knew children could die because when I was six, my little brother Danny died. But it never, ever, ever occurred to me that our daughter would die. Mm -hmm. Unlike my wife, who would say, 
this was my worst nightmare come true. It wasn't my worst nightmare. It wasn't on my radar screen. But when Aaron did die, there was no part of me that believed there was a light at the end of the tunnel. No mm-hmm. part whatsoever. And I write in the book, I very, very, very seriously considered suicide. You know, I think that that's something that, that, we, that we rarely talk about. But it's so common when someone that you love so dearly dies. And then, you know, nine years later, my wife's death was even more, even more to me, explosively unbelievable. And the fact that she died on New Year's Day, I, I, I could not believe that. And that the yeah. next day would have been our daughter's 10th birthday. But I knew I could heal after Trish died. I knew there was a light at the end of the tunnel, and that did change the experience. Now, I had two small children, and a lot of people say, well, that's what kept you going. That's, that was not the truth for me. I resented the fact that I had two kids. I mm. even thought this would be easier if I only had one kid. And if I had no kids whatsoever, you know, I could just completely escape and become someone else. So in 2005, when my son Rory got brain cancer, honestly, that tunnel was lit. That tunnel mm. was lit. And I became an active observer, an active participant. I knew I could heal. I wasn't sure how interested I was in healing because it requires so much work. But to your point, yes, all three experiences were very different. And I am who I am. I was able to write the book because of the um, cumulative uh, the impact of cumulative all those experiences. Effect. I'd like the I'd like the listeners to hear a little bit of the book to to get a sense of that voice that you are. Uh, would you read the part that starts? We dance between both worlds. I will. I will. And this is this is how I open the book. The death of someone we love dearly cracks us open, big time. It's supposed to. It did me, and for a time which varies from person to person and can be a few days or a week or two or a month or many months or a year or years or the rest of our life. Some, many, will dance between both worlds. I do. Do you? Did you? Are you still dancing? I that the ending came uh, surprisingly, and I I really liked that that uh, because it it did kind of fit the idea that it's a dance. Uh, I I had never thought of it that way before, uh, but but it fits for me. And that, and I feel today, twenty fifteen, I still dance between both worlds consciously. I have one foot in this world, and I have one foot in the other. And I kind of like it that way. Well, that's the thing that changes. Uh, you know, my, my mother died uh, in September. And so, of course, when I, when I have another loss, uh, I am more aware of what you're talking about. Uh, usually it's just going on, 
kind of because it's the way I live. <laughs> but uh, I've noticed since she's died that I really am feeling all those people that are over there much more. And I have more of a sense of being in both places at once. But it is not bad. That's, that's a good thing in my book. No, I think it's quite wonderful. And I, I literally, literally believe that if the bond is really, really, really close, that a part of us goes with them. And so many people describe it as, you know, I don't feel like I'm here. I feel like it's, this is a dream. I feel like I'm out of my body. A, a, a part of us is. And, and when we realize that it's safe, then we slowly but surely come back into our body. And mm. then, you know, like I said, that could take a week, a month, years, and for some people it never happens because they never feel safe again. Yes. Well, well the other thing that I appreciated, uh, because I'm experiencing it right now, um, and, and did when my father died too, uh, you know, people are like, oh, it must be easier for you to grieve because, you know, you know all about it. No, <laughs> it's just what you say that you know you can do it. And uh, uh, that makes it easier in a sense, I guess. Would you agree? You know, I think this is really, really important that we say over and over again. And maybe I'll get T-shirts printed up with this. Grieving, you know, mourning the death of someone we love, working on our healing is hard, 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 hard work. And I truly believe that's why most people do it. Don't do it. I mean, mm -hmm. most people do what I call grief the old way. They repress, they deny, they pretend. It's too hard to feel all, all of our feelings and our, and our emotions. It's hard. It's just hard, hard, hard work. It's just that the alternative is, is uh, life-stopping. In some sense, at least and, it would have been many for me. People out there are, you know, the the, the walking wounded. They're walking mm -hmm. around, but they're dead on the inside. Yes, because it is life stopping. I agree. The the other thing that's, uh, uh, and we may just start this because it's almost time for a break. But um, I was so aware reading about you and what you went through, the impact. And this was only my imagination, the impact of suddenness. Uh, because, in fact, I was helped by all the work I did to prepare for my wife dying, knowing that it was coming for so long. Um, <laughs> it, it was quite different than some of the sudden loss that I witness in people. And I can't compare it because that was the first loss, big loss I experienced. But I wonder what you think, and, and again, you know, we're about to break, but what do you think about uh, the differences between sudden and prepared loss? I think there are so many variables that it's really, really hard to compare. I, I think that after the death we all have much more in common than we've been led to believe or that we think. But I'll tell you, uh, my 13-year-old son's death, it wasn't what you would call sudden. Mm -hmm. I mean, I found out in, in, in November that he was terminal. 
and he died February 22nd. I mean, Mm -hmm. some people would say, you know, three months is sudden, but it certainly wasn't as sudden as, as my daughter or my wife's. But because it was him, because of the relationship I had with him, and I did not want... It wasn't that it wasn't that I was afraid of him dying because I knew it would be just such an exciting adventure for him. Mm-hmm. What I was afraid of is how would I go on living with him dead? Yes. So even though there was, you know, there were three months to prep, oh, that was, that was the worst for me. It was absolutely the worst. My son Rory's death almost killed me. Mm-hmm. We're going to break. Let's talk about that more when we come back and listeners go to my host page, good grief at voice America got com. You can find links to everything and to uh, get in touch with Tom Zuba, go to www.tomzuba.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I'm here with Tom Zuba, author of Permission to Mourn, A New Way to Do Grief. And you were just saying before the break, Tom, that uh, when your son Rory died, uh, you you just didn't know if you wanted to live with the fact that he had died. Not concerned for him, you thought he was okay, but you weren't. And I wonder if you could say more about that, because uh, I'm sure there have got to be listeners who felt that way. Absolutely. Um, I really, really believe that life unfolds perfectly. And as I said, after my wife died, 
I most sincerely wished, number one, that I had no children, or number two, that I only had one, because I thought that would be easier. So it is not lost on me that five years later, my son is diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, and my wish is going to come true. I'm going to end up with one living child. Mm. But what had happened in the interim is actually I read one of I read both of Eckhart Tolle's books, The Power of Now and A New Earth. Mm. And there was a, a line in I believe it's The Power of Now when he said, When you resist what is, you are waging war with life. And that stuck with me because I most definitely was resisting my own life. And it took me about a year plus to figure out how to stop doing battle with my reality. But I finally did. And I loved, I loved being mother and father to both of my sons. I loved it. I relished in it. I loved being a family of three. Absolutely, absolutely loved it. And I particularly loved raising my oldest son, Rory, because he was so much like me. Mm. In fact, after he died, my mom said, Tom, you were the perfect parent for Rory. And, and I knew that that was true, that I was the perfect parent, because he was everything that I am. And I thought I could create an environment for him where he could maximize his potential. So really, in caring for him, I was also caring for me. Yes. So, so when I knew he was going to die, oh, my Lord, that was, that was the end. That was the end of so many dreams. And, and, you know, so many goals um, and, and, and a future that I had created for the three of us. Uh, he was a fascinating human being, and he believed in time travel. He believed in parallel universes. He was only 13. He believed in um, the black hole. And I knew that he would continue in one form or another, but as, as you said, it was me that I was concerned about. I thought the, the, the deep, dark black hole that will have been created when he leaves his physical body, I just do not know if I have the strength to pull myself out of it one more time. I, I just wasn't sure I would be able to do that. Mm. And how soon did you get the sense that maybe you could? Great question. About um, 10 days after he died, I woke up in the middle of the night and I checked my watch and it was 2.22. And Rory and I loved the synchronicity of numbers. Rory died on February 22nd, which is 2.22. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And about a week later, I woke up in the middle of the night again, checked my watch. It was 2, 2, 2. Mm. I said, okay, okay, I get it. You know, you are here. <laughs> this is one of the ways you're going to communicate with me. That was the beginning. Now, that was the beginning of a long, long, long climb out of that deep, dark hole. But that was the beginning. Mm. 
I think it's a great moment for you to share the piece from your book uh, titled Stages of Grief. Okay, okay. This is uh, interesting. Just because you're talking about kind of going into the into the whole of grief, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe I mean that in both spellings, uh, just diving yeah. into all of that chaos and wildness. So I think that fits with, with what you said in this passage. This, this piece was actually born on my Facebook page, I don't know, maybe 18 months ago, 20 months ago. And I have worked it and reworked it. But it was absolutely one of the most popular pieces that I posted on Facebook. I'm not going to read the whole piece. It was also the most controversial. I was, I was stunned by the people who um, fought me on this. But um, by and large, it, it was seen by several hundred thousand people, and it was also shared by hundreds and hundreds of people. This, it rings true for me. So it's called Stages of Grief. I'm going to come right out and say it. If you are working with a therapist, counselor, social worker, grief expert, minister, priest, or anyone else who is trying to help you navigate the wilderness of grief, and they start talking about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief, suggesting that there is a predictable, orderly unfolding of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Please, please, please do yourself a favor and run as far away from that person as fast as you can. That expert does not know grief. Not really. Grief is the automatic internal response to loss. Everyone grieves. Everyone. If you are alive and have attached to something, anything, a job, a pet, your health, your looks, your house, a person, a certain lifestyle, your car, anything, if you have attached to something and you lose that something, you grieve, automatic, internal. And as much as I'd like to tell you that grief will be orderly, neat and tidy, predictable, and unfold in five stages, it will not, period. Grief is wild and messy and unpredictable and uncertain and ever-changing and unsettling and unnerving. Most of us, all of us, are ill-equipped and ill-prepared to go with the flow of grief when it is our time because we never talk about it. Yes. <laughs> That's what I have to say. About yeah, we that. are now. We are now. But boy, I mean, boy, did that get a response from folks. Especially well, I'm, professionals. I'm, uh, I'm, maybe I can imagine what kinds of negative responses you got because people get attached to their viewpoints. Yeah. But, but could you fill that in a little for me? Absolutely. It, it, okay, I wrote it in 2014. 
Cheryl, in 2014, I am still astounded by the number of grief therapists, ministers, counselors who teach Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages in an orderly, predictable manner. First you go through this, then you finish it. Then you go through this, then you finish it. Then you go through that. There, there are professionals out there that believe that that's, what, that's how grief unfolds. And, and I haven't read her book nail. for a they very long time, but I don't think that's exactly how she looked at it. And of course not. Of course not. <laughs> not at all. Yeah, uh, that would be, boy, I'm glad I didn't, I'm, I'm glad nobody tried to get me on board with that because uh, that would have added such a layer of misery to pain. Right, right. And, and, and some people thought I was bashing her work. Not at all. The truth of the matter is she worked with a small group of people that were dying and in those people, she observed these five stages. And what we did, honestly, because I think we didn't know what else to do, we applied these five stages to those of us who didn't die, you know, mm-hmm. to those of us who are still here. And, and later in her life, she said, I wish I, had never, I wish I had never identified those because of the way they've been used and misused and abused. Well, and also, I guess if I to their beliefs, yeah, if I think about the wild state called grief in myself, I have experienced all those things at different moments. It's not that they're entirely felt false as states of being; they're just not orderly, (laughs) and they're not, and they're not the only states, right? You know. And when someone says to me, you know, Tom, I I haven't felt that anger stage yet. You know, I haven't felt that. So I'm not going to be able to move on to the next stage. How do do I get into anger? You know, it's like, okay, let's back up. Let's back up for sure. Yeah, Uh, you know, we, we we start wherever we are. You know, we start in the present moment. That's where healing occurs. What are you feeling right now? Yes. I love the part of your book, and, and this really spoke to me as a person who's grieving at the moment, uh, who has a busy life. <laughs> so it was very personal for me. The, the part of the book uh, where you talk about, uh, you know, wanting to... Uh, transform the griever to a beautiful, comfortable room with yummy food and a and a wonderful bed and a overstuffed chair, and uh, that is sort of you know just having a space to rummage around in whatever at the moment is happening, even when it's sometimes nothing. Uh, that seems to me one of the most critical requirements of grief. I agree with you. I agree with you. The fact that in 2015, most people have to go back to work after three days, I I consider that abusive. I I joke with friends that I would love to have a limo service that pulls up to the cemetery 
And as soon as the casket goes down or the ashes are buried, you know, the grievers jump in the limo and I whisk them away to that room where they can stay until they are ready to leave. And that, that could be as long as they wanted. If, if we did something like that, I think as a society we would be so much healthier. I agree, and given that for many reasons, um, that isn't most of our lives, how, what kind of, uh, how do you help people to compromise with that? Because, for instance, my life, uh, I don't want to stop doing this. You know, there's, there's many things that are important to me I wouldn't want to actually stop, so how would you recommend people balance that, the things they want to actually continue or have to, because economics is, of course, real? Right. Uh, you know, how, how do you uh, help people in that way? Yeah, another great question. I said earlier, I truly, truly believe that life unfolds perfectly. And in retrospect, life prepares us for life. So believe it or not, while my, both of my sons were perfectly healthy, I enrolled in this 18-month program. I was living in Illinois, but the program was in Northern California. And it was taught by a brilliant woman by the name of Natalie Rogers, whose father is the internationally well-known, respected psychologist, Carl Rogers. Ah. So Natalie, who now is in her 80s, is an artist. And this was a certification program in expressive arts for social healing and change. So what, what she taught us was Carl's philosophy about creating a safe space. And everything I do is rooted in this. And I'm going to explain it. It's very simple. I, I, mod, I, I create it for myself. I model it for the people that I work with. I've created it on my Facebook page. And the intent is that people that interact with me will then be able to go home and create this space for themselves. There's three criteria. If, if I can create a space for you, and then you can go home and create that for yourself, a space where, number one, you get to feel every feeling and every emotion that arises. Number two, in the safe, sacred space, you feel loved and lovable. And number three, in the safe space, you feel seen, heard, and honored. If I can create that for you, which I can, you will heal. It's rooted in Carl Rogers' work. The human organism will grow towards the light, you know, grow towards self-actualization if these conditions are created and met. So that, that's, that's what I would suggest. That's what I do suggest for everyone. We need to create this safe, sacred space for ourselves. I think in the olden days, at least my fantasy is that people, you know, family members and friends were able to create the space for us. 
now we pay therapists to kind of be our friends and hopefully they'll create the space for us. Mm. But in the end, I'm responsible for my own healing and I need to create the space space. for myself. Yeah. That's a great, great spot to break for our second time. And uh, we'll go deeper into that when we come back. Uh, Listeners out there, don't forget to connect with me at my host page. Let me know what you're thinking and feeling. Uh, Please go to my social media and comment so I know uh, that you're out there. Uh, And to find Tom Zumba, go to TomZumba.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Tom Zuba. That's C-U-B-A, by the way. Uh, So when you're going to his website, you'll find it easily. And he's the author of Permission to Grieve. and He's a grief coach. And uh, before we, we left on the break, we were talking about the importance of having a a, sp- a space for grief that feels safe. Of course, you and I are actively involved in trying to either uh, create that in our offices or support people creating it, uh, you know, in their homes. Uh, and you and you uh, very eloquently put uh, the three characteristics of it out. Uh, could you maybe share? a story or two of people who've, you know, I, I think that's different from person to person. That's my experience. And I'd love to hear what you've experienced with it with people. You know, what do they, what do they create? What makes that for individual people? That's a great, great question. For most people, number one, I think it's a really, really foreign concept 
that it's okay to feel every feeling and every emotion because from an early age, we've been taught that some feelings are good and some are bad. You know, some are appropriate and some are inappropriate. Um, We're rewarded if we feel happy, you know, um, and, and sad, and men get to feel angry. Women certainly don't, but that's about it. I mean, that's about the extent of the emotions and feelings that we're allowed to feel. So just that very concept is really, really foreign to people. Um, what I share with folks is feelings have a beginning and a middle and an end. And, and we're not our feelings. You know, our feelings are energy currents that run through us. And the truth of the matter is they are tied to beliefs that we either hold on to consciously or subconsciously. So when, when we become aware of our feelings, I'll give you an example. I am really, really angry because my son died too soon. I was robbed. He was only 13. It's not fair. Life is not fair. Mm. Okay. When I hold on to those beliefs, he died too soon. I was robbed. Life isn't fair. Those beliefs cause me incredible pain. I do not want to feel pain. I want to make peace with my life. And the way that I do that is to very consciously select a new belief. I believe my son died at the perfect time, in the perfect way. I I, I was not robbed. I am so grateful. I had every minute with him. And the truth of the matter is, I still have a relationship with him. He is not gone. He is not lost. He was not stolen from me. Mm-hmm. My relationship with him continues. Mm-hmm. That's, that's just the tip of the iceberg, Cheryl. I mean, where we can go with this. That's really interesting because, you know, uh, I think the painful losses with my wife, the, the moments I remember of the deepest pain, were things were not about uh, I never felt our relationship ended it was more about how it changed <laughs> you know that that we uh, couldn't you know touch each other's hands or we couldn't talk to each other she didn't cook me food anymore but uh, if you think that you've entirely lost the person you're so bereft. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, one of one of the I have been given so many gifts, and I write about some of them in the book. But one of the gifts my wife Trish gave me is when our daughter Erin died at eighteen months. She made it clear that Erin lived a full life. Mm. She was never going to be two years old. She was never going to go to kindergarten. She wasn't going to be sixteen. She was going to live 18 months. That's a novel concept, and it's so healing, and it creates peace. So when my wife died at 43, I was like, oh, my goodness. Maybe Trish died at the right time as well. Maybe Trish was never going to be 50. 
Maybe she was never going to see her kids graduate from high school. And then when Rory died at 13, I, I had wholeheartedly embraced that as my belief. So Rory was never going to be 16. He was never going to be 21. Um, those, those thoughts do not cause me pain. Although, to your point, do I miss them? Do I miss all three of them? Do I wish I could touch them every day? Every day. Yes, yes, yes. I miss them. I think that that's part of it. And I miss them. It's clear to me. If I'm willing to dive into the missing them, it's because I love them so much. And I I will take the love. I will take the love. I'm with you. If if there were such a thing as a thousand percent, I'd be with you a thousand percent on that. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's important, too, because I know that... um, you know, I was thinking about uh, the process of reinvesting in life after a terrible loss. Do you love again? You know, do you have more children, which you did? Do you fall in love again when your wife has died? And I know that when I did, because I am remarried, uh, it wasn't that wasn't easy either. That was also a grief process. I kept kind of seeing the overlay of her death, the, my new my new partners, you know, I kept seeing it on her face kind of, you know, <laughs> the, knowing that that's real. But boy, who would want to miss it? Don't, don't you think many people do miss it though, Cheryl? Well, I do, and I guess that's why... Why I'm going in this direction? That there's something, let, 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 you know, so so terrible about it? most people apparently. <laughs> yeah, uh, or or miss it in the first place. It it so happened that uh, I had I'd been with my first wife very young, and kind of guarded against it, and and we were apart for many years. You know, it takes a lot to say yes to the natural consequence of love, which is loss. Absolutely. And what astounds me is the number of people I interact with who aren't even aware of the fact that they can heal following the death of someone they love, particularly parents whose children have died, but other people as well. It's not even on their their radar screen that they have the possibility of healing and living a full, joy-filled life again. So that's part of the reason I wrote my book. I mean, that's definitely part of my message, to be a light and a beacon of hope. Well, and you say again, but I, I was... Uh... I was just thinking as I was preparing for our talk that uh, I was thinking about how uh, how joyful the people are that I know who have faced up to deep losses, not tried to skirt around the grief. They're the happiest people I know. And, and, and <laughs> you know, and so there's some kind of paradox or irony that this thing we all work so hard to avoid actually has the potential to make one happier and more engaged with life, don't you think? I, I, I know that to be true because I, I have not forgot, forgotten what it feels like to be at the bottom of the deep, dark pit. I haven't forgotten that. 
and I haven't forgotten the times when I did consider suicide and when I did think I would never, ever, ever see the light again. So to be in a place where I am filled with joy, it's it's all the more sweet because I, I honestly didn't think I would ever experience that again. So I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the highs, I think, are in proportion to the lows that we've experienced. I, I, I agree with you. And I also think if you're guarding against hard feelings, if you don't think you can survive them, you, you kind of have to cut everything off a little bit. Uh, you kind of have to leave the door mostly closed. Uh, so I, I guess I feel when I learned how to have very troubling feelings, it opened the door to all my more joyful feelings in some sense. I, I agree. And, and those of us that know now, I truly believe that it's our job to become the teachers. And, and we have the opportunity, we have the invitation. In fact, I believe that that's what this is all about. We have the opportunity to teach other people and to create that safe, sacred space for them so they too will know, you know, life can be good again. Life can be wonderful. Um, you know, not, not because of the fact that someone that we love died, but I mean, not in spite of the fact, but because of the fact. Yeah, that's, uh, isn't it, uh, isn't it, one of my friends and teachers, Stephen Levine, wrote a book called uh, A Year to Live. Yes. And it it is not for people who are dying. (laughs) Well, we are all dying. In that sense, it is. But it's not for people with a diagnosis or any of that it's about what you learn when you face up to death yeah you know and uh i i carry that concept around with me uh day to day uh it really makes life a lot more lively doesn't it what what's amazing to me and i've thought long and hard about this i believe most people in the united states consider themselves christian and and what they profess to believe is that when they die, they will be, you know, united or reunited with God, you know, whatever their concept of God is. So why do we live in such fear of dying? Makes no mm-hmm. sense to me. None. <laughs> we, do yeah. whatever, we do whatever we possibly can. Think about the extent we go to and the money we spend making sure we don't die. No kidding. Yeah, I've, I'm, I've, been, I've been reading a lot of books about end of life, too. You know where I'd like to end our conversation, and I do hope people will go experience more of you. An hour is a very short time. But um, I would like to end uh, with the section of your book about radiance. Okay, okay. This, is, this comes towards the end of my book, and, and I'm telling you, when I sat down and wrote this, it just poured through me, and I was very, very reluctant to share it publicly because I thought people would throw stones at me and would say, how dare you, how dare you say this? But this is my truth. 
so I'm going to share it. You were born to be radiant, and so was I. Not in spite of the fact that someone you love has died, but because of the fact that someone you love has died. Say yes. Say yes. Say yes. Say yes to life. Say yes to love. Say yes to you. You know, I must live in a peculiar world uh, and a similar world to yours, but I can't even fathom, you know, that statement being rejected. I mean, possibly radiant because of the fact that someone you love has died. Is that what you were concerned about saying? I, I, I have literally have people who know my story say to me, Tom, you don't really know what it's like to have a child die. I will never be happy again. I was not born to be radiant. I will never be radiant. How dare you say that to me? You don't know what it's like to live with the death of a child. Which is a, an extreme lack of attention, isn't it? <laughs> because obviously you're very public about that. To me, it's a symptom of the incredible pain that that person is in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I thank you for this radiant hour. I've enjoyed myself a lot. And um, listeners, really go find Tom Zuba at tomzuba.com. Next week, I'll have with me Peggy McGuire, the executive director at the Women's Cancer Resource Center, which offers service to women with cancer and their families. And uh, that organization, my first wife was one of the founders of, and I run the continuing education program there. So I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about very intimately. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.